This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. This is Eric McNulty, your ReadyCast host. Trucks ramming into crowds, bombs in the marketplace, active shooters in schools and workplaces. Violent extremism has become part of the fabric of our lives. Today we're discussing combating violent extremism. Our guest is Farah Pandev. She has counterintuitive views on how we do that. She's going to share with us her thinking and give us a preview of her new book, How We Win. Pandit has spent many years researching this topic. She's traveled the world as special representative to Muslim communities at the United States Department of State. She's held numerous roles in government and is currently an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and non-resident senior fellow at the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She's been a frequent speaker at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Farah, welcome to the program. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to speak with you. Let me start with a bit of background. What, what prompted you to embark on this journey to understand violent extremism and, and how, what to do about it? The first time I actually had a chance to talk to people who were interested in extremist ideology was when I was in graduate school. And I was doing my work on my master's thesis and I did firsthand research with militants in northern India who were part of groups that were using violent ideology. But I could never have imagined that I would spend my career thinking about how young people are attracted to groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. That happened right after 9-11. And then you were prompted to say, hey, what can I do about this? Well, when I think about uh, the opportunity for us as a country to get serious about fighting a group like uh, Al-Qaeda at the time, we were really looking at the hard power solutions, Eric. I mean, we were thinking about how to defend our country. We were thinking about what we needed to do to make sure that uh, another 9-11 didn't happen. And it took us a little bit uh, of time to actually gather ourselves together and, and think about how do you stop recruitment from taking place. These groups, you can't build an army if you don't have recruits. For me, as soon as 9-11 happened, I was thinking about the fact that I had done my master's thesis on the insurgency in northern India. I had interviewed militants. I knew a little bit about what was taking place in the mind of those kinds of extremists. I'm an American. I'm a Muslim. Uh, I'm somebody who had served in government right out of college. And I felt very strongly that this was a call to action, that it was an opportunity for me to serve in any way that I could. And when I joined government in 2003, uh, I was looking at the perspective of how do we talk about this, these elements in a way that would be helpful to our country and how could we insert ourselves into the process of stopping a young person from finding this ideology appealing. So when I rejoined government in 2003, it was really around service and service in, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And as the years went by and I had the opportunity um, and the privilege to work at the White House at the National Security Council, it was then in those, in those days that we began to really think more creatively about the process of radicalization and how to disrupt it. And so I, 
one of the challenges here, I think, with this is that, like any kind of terrorism, it's a tactic. So when we say we're going to defeat it, we're going to win, uh, it's tough to, to beat a tactic. So, so when you talk about winning, how do we win and how will you measure success? I think it's important, Eric, the way you just described this. You cannot look at the fight we are having against terrorist organizations, in my view, in the way we have looked at defeating armies on a battlefield only. This in the, in the 21st century, the different domains that this particular threat, you know, we face, uh, it has many, many dimensions. And it's not just in the online space. It's not just in the offline space. It's not just in the battlefield. It's in the entire ecosystem of how we live. And thus, as we think about how we should look at a threat like this, we should be looking at it the way we would look at an infectious disease. We should be looking at it in terms of a multidimensional, comprehensive approach to making sure that we are looking at how to interrupt the progress of that ideology. And in order to do that, it's what government has to do, it's what the private sector has to do, and it's what regular citizens have to do. And that's the way we can defeat the ideology from not only being appealing to young people, but also spreading around the world. And so this different approach, this idea of thinking of it like an infectious disease, which I think is quite interesting, and thinking more of a soft power approach, as you've gone around and and shared your thinking, who supports it and where do you get pushback? Well, it's important to remember that you cannot just uh, look at the threat that we're facing from either hard power or soft power. It is looking at this threat from both perspectives because we obviously need to defeat the armies that are doing damage and winning physical space. But it's the intellectual space that we have to do a better job of getting and interrupting and protecting young people. And that's a harder thing for government to put their hands around because it's harder to measure. You can if you look at the, the military power, you can measure success. You can think about how many troops are on the ground. You can think about how many you know, uh, missiles are used or bombs are, uh, are, are dropped or tanks are used. And, you can, and you, can, you can understand the schematics in a different way in terms of how, many, um, uh, how, how much land has been seized back or, or how much territory uh, we overtake. They're very clear systems of measurement around hard power. Soft power is much more complex. It's the gushy stuff. The government doesn't do a good job of, uh, of understanding. For, for many people in government, it, it was very hard to understand how we as a government, how the United States government, to be precise, had a opportunity to get into the, in, into the dimensions around young kids uh, joining groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And now let me be really clear about this. These groups, these types of groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Shabaab, terrorist groups that use the name of Islam for their nefarious ends are preying upon uh, one specific kind of demographic to try to 
win future recruits, right? They're looking at young people under the age of 30 who in some way have an affinity either culturally or religiously toward Islam. That's the demographic from which they recruit. And so government, when it looks at that particular data point, has a very difficult time saying, how do we as a government, first of all, in the United States government that separates church and state, how do we get into the process of behavioral change or intellectual change? And what we did not do is to really uh, unpack what was actually happening to these young Muslim kids, millennials primarily at that time, now Generation Z as well, uh, around this issue. And for them, the central point on recruitment is for these young people, they were having a crisis of identity post 9-11. They were asking questions about culture and religion and the American government was not the right or credible voice to be able to play in that, uh, play in that domain. So when we got pushback, it was pushed back from government, uh, other parts of government who said, we don't have a role to play here. Why should we be doing anything? This is not our thing. We also had a pushback from, uh, well, every part of government, every branch of government who didn't see how we could do this. But we also had pushback from community members who in regular society, who civil society, who said, we don't want government coming in and trying to get involved in this process of making sure a young person is, you know, talking about their religion or their culture, and we don't want them connected to us because, you know, the way it was being interpreted was that the United States government was, in fact, just looking at Muslims, and so it seemed the, the, the way in which the dynamics were very, very complicated because it was for the American Muslim portion of our country, they felt as though they, was, they were being very specifically targeted. So we had different and competing and very serious problems with the way in which the United States government could begin to even talk about this issue or be, even be, be able to think differently about how we interrupt the process of exploration around identity. And in the early days after 9-11, that pushback was very, very clear. It was not until several years later in, in the latter part of the Bush administration when people began to understand that if we don't, as a government, do a better job in trying to figure out how to interrupt the process, the bad guys are going to have an opportunity to prey upon more and more kids, not just in our country, but all over the world. And some of the factors you talk about, the crisis of identity, I think to the general turbulence of our world and the uncertainty about so many parts of our lives, don't those, doesn't that transcend religion? I mean, we tend to focus on these Muslim groups, but do some of these same pressures affect other groups? And we see certainly in the U.S. actions by people from all religious backgrounds. Is there some of that sort of just a general societal condition? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that as digital natives, millennials are getting signals from many, many different sources around identity, about behavior, about who they are, regardless of their race, regardless of their economic status, regardless of where they are in the world. This is just, as you are rightly are saying, this is just where we are in the world today. But it's also where in the world we were in years past, even though we, we didn't have the internet the growth of a human person. It's important to note that the, the navigation of identity is not unique 
to this moment in time in the 21st century. After all, everybody growing up has a, has a question around identity and they try to figure out who they are and their place in the world. What is different right now is that the voices that are specifically targeting young Muslims uh, and asking them to think differently in terms of their identity is uh, like a megaphone around the world. It's in surround sound. It comes in every touch point for these young people online and offline. And the increase of us versus them narratives in our world today uh, bolster the points that groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda put forward that, the, that there is a fight between the West and Islam, that you can't be a real Muslim unless you buy into their ideology. So while you are correct that young people the world over uh, of every shape and size and stripe do in fact have you know a navigation of identity and think about who they are as they grow up and as we know the human mind isn't developed until the age of 24 so the signals they're getting how they're thinking about themselves that's a universal thing that's happening the difference however is the scale and the tempo of the voices of extremism that are working very hard uh, 24 seven to recruit young people uh, to their side. Well, that's, that's good to know. That's a very important distinction to make. So I guess if we could sum up this portion of the conversation, it is that we have to find ways to engage people in those formative years to help them understand how to be both Muslim and positive forces in society and, and counteract that. Is that what you're, the, the nugget of what you're saying? Yes, and that credible voices are the way in which we, we go about that, that it cannot be from top down. It isn't just government telling civil society how to think about who they are and how to express themselves and their identity. That's not going to work. What does work is behavioral change happens from the ground up. It happens through the way in which young people experience our life, the many touch points they have in and out of school, in their home, with very importantly with their peers, very importantly with what society is saying. So puncturing the us versus them narratives of all kinds, the us versus them narratives matter so that we are showing young people not only a new kind of way of thinking about who they are and not just migrating towards the very loud voices of how the extremists express their identity, but also giving to them a path forward that allows them to explore their, their identity in ways that make sense for them, but also uh, give them the tools that they need to bolster who they are and to, for themselves, be able to push back against the recruitment tactics that the, that the bad guys are uh, deploying. To put that into our NPLI terms, in terms of, of meta leadership that we speak about, this sounds very consistent with that in that the credible voices can help people, help these young people become confident in themselves and grounded in who they are as individuals. It can also help them see the larger context in which they are living and, and make some sense of it so they can know how and where to engage in ways that are going to benefit them and benefit their communities as well. And then the real challenge for those of us, the, the royal us there in this effort, is to build connectivity that brings together the people who, who can work together, who can stop that us versus them narrative, but say it's a we. Uh, and there are ways that you can be part of we 
that are uh, good for you and good for those around you. Is that a fair summary? That is a great summary. And it's important to remember that it isn't just sort of the exploration in, in a vacuum. It's also making sure that communities themselves and government themselves are transparent about the techniques and the tactics that the bad guys use enable so that they, they understand how the bad guys recruit, what they're actually doing, how algorithms work uh, in the online space and how a young person can move in that direction, how in fact peers are getting bad information about identity and religion and culture. Um, it's important to understand that as young kids are asking questions like who am I and where do I come from, that the resources that they have in the way that makes sense for them are translated into action for them to understand it and absorb it and use it. Um, and that's the difference here. You know, you can have government can do everything in the world to say this stuff is there, but it's not, it's not delivered in a way that makes sense. Civil society can say, but we have all these things, but government isn't understanding what's taking place. There, that, that bridge and that understanding between these different sectors is critical. And that's around the leadership part. Um, that's what's been missing as, as well. And it isn't, and it, as again, I'll say what I said when we started, the way you are able to deal with this particular threat and this challenge is not one sector's responsibility. It, it's a tri-sector responsibility. It is government, it is the private sector, and it is civil society, each of which has a, a role to play in decreasing the us versus them narrative that exists in our uh, ecosystems. Well, that's a good place in which to transition to some of the general leadership lessons you've taken out of your work. Uh, and the first one I wanted to ask you about is you've traveled around the world, more than 80 countries, as I recall, when you were uh, working with the State Department, and you had to go into a community where you were not known, where you were a woman, where you were an American, and quickly build trust and confidence. How did you do that? That's an excellent question, and I think it's important to um, take a step back and not just say it's about me uh, as Farah Pandas. It, it is about, I, I think, anyone who's stepping into a role as a diplomat trying to do whatever it is that they're trying to do. I think the, the most important piece of this for me was authenticity, that I was being who I was in the most respectful way I could be with the culture around me, and that I was listening. Um, and, and the listening part is vital. You cannot go into new communities and act as if you know everything. You cannot go in and pretend that you are something that you are not. And you can't go in and be less than yourself. And, and I think because it smacks of, you know, it's too contrived. It doesn't seem real. It just seems like you're putting something on. For me to, and you know, the hardest critics, by the way, are young people themselves. They can see right through you. And I, my job as special representative when I was doing this work was to talk to young people under the age of 30. So you go and you are talking to an audience that already is looking at you as an adult with, you know, who is this person coming from America? She's an American Muslim. She's also a diplomat. She's doing all this stuff. But for me to be able to connect with these young people, it was important for me to be on their level in the sense of give them as much respect and dignity as I would expect for myself, to be as authentic as I could be, and then to be quiet and to listen to what it is that they were telling me. That's how 
you can actually understand the situation without blinders on, without preconceived notions of what it is you're going to hear, whether you're in Mauritania or you're in Malaysia, you need to be able to, to hear what it is that people are saying. Well, I think that's an excellent point. One can never overemphasize the benefits of listening in pretty much any leadership situation or any situation period of taking the time to listen and to actually hear someone a solid step toward creating a real human connection, which then makes dialogue possible. Uh, now, you were one of the few appointees, very, very few appointees, political appointees, who served in both the Bush and the Obama administrations. Through that experience, what did you learn about leading up? Uh, leading up to political appointees uh, or to political officials is never particularly easy, but how did you do it and what did you take away from it? It, you know, Eric, one of the, the greatest privileges uh, in, in the world is to be able to serve a country that you admire so much and are so happy to be part of. And this nation means a lot to me, uh, especially as somebody who was not born in this country. And so for me, the jobs that I was doing on behalf of our government really came from my heart. So I was not doing this from a political point of view. It was doing it because I really cared about the issue that I was working on. And I really, I really cared that we as a country did everything that we could do to deal with the to deal with this threat that we are facing. So one of the most important aspects of all of this was to not, I was not political in what I was doing. I was coming from a position of um, this issue doesn't have a Republican or a Democratic spin on it. This issue is a an issue that every American should care about and everybody in the world should care about. There are terrorist organizations that are trying to recruit youth and there is something that we can do about it and we need to do the best job that we can to use every tool in our tools toolbox to do it. So when I was speaking with those that, that, you know, that I worked for in both administrations, I was a straight shooter. I called it as it was. I didn't flip things around because I thought it would be better to hear. I think one of the things that um, is a strength or a, or a weakness, it depends on who you talk to, but I'm very, very honest. And when you ask me something, I give you the real answer. I don't spin. Um, and I think that that served me very well because I think it was it was very clear to people why I was doing the job that I, I was doing. I'm very clearly very passionate about this issue, very passionate about our country. I believe that the solutions are available and affordable. Uh, I believe that there is, um, with the right kind of focus and determination, we can do far more than we expected to be able to do. And so with that mindset, to be able to answer questions honestly and in a straightforward manner, it served me, it served me very well. So whether I was, you know, briefing Secretary Clinton or I was briefing Mr. Hadley, it, it is the exact same, same model. You are, you're saying things as they are and you're telling your principal what, what you believe uh, is really taking place and what we can be doing. Well, that can be a very hard thing to do as well. And you were fortunate to work with people who were willing to hear truth to power as much as you were willing to speak it and, and deal with reality as it is. Absolutely. And, and I completely agree with you. I, I think in the cases where, in the cases where in both administrations, people did not want to hear or believed that they knew more about the issue you know, it, it, it was definitely challenging, but that doesn't mean you change who you are in terms of delivering your message. The method 
that I'm speaking about is backing up your facts with the reality, not spinning and giving the whole picture. And I think that's the only way those that you that that are in more senior positions than you can assess the situation and make a determination whether or not they do what it is you want them to do. That is a second question. But your responsibility is to give them as much information as clearly and sharply and confidently as you can so that they have all of the all of the dynamics to, to a situation so that they can make uh, they can make a choice about what we are going to do. One of the other challenges, and you've brought this out already, is that this is a multi-dimensional, multi-sector problem uh, that requires the public sector, private, as well as civil society to come together. So what did you learn about working across organizational boundaries, both within and beyond government, what we would call meta leadership, leading, leading across and beyond? Uh, what did you learn about how to lead across those boundaries to build unity of effort? Well, I think it's become a very cute phrase these days to, you know, this public-private partnership piece, and everybody wants, certainly in government, to have a private sector partner that's shiny and new and some big corporation or big Silicon Valley name or something where, you know, it's a, it's a great add-on to a particular project. And I think if you're going about it from, from that perspective, you've already lost. I think one of the things that's really important is to be able to understand why it is and what it is each of these different sectors can do. Sometimes there is a partnership across different platforms. Sometimes it's just everybody working on a goal, but we have articulated the different things that different groups are going to be. So the, the first thing that I have absolutely learned is to be clear about what particular sectors can and cannot do and to, and to not kid yourself about what you believe a particular group can do. Secondly, I think it's important to make it easy for these, for the leaders in these particular sectors to see the path ahead and to, and to get on board with it. I think one of the things around the failures in each of these sections is the trust factor because people did not quite always understand where particular people were going on a, uh, on a project. So that I learned that you had to, had to absolutely be transparent and clear about what it is you needed them to do and why. And then thirdly, and, and, and this is really, really important, that, you know, each of these constituencies wants, <laughs> this, is, this is not a polite way of saying it, but they want credit for what it is that they're doing for different reasons, um, you know, uh, and to understand where, where government is coming from, where an NGO might be coming from, or where a corporation is coming from and why they're actually investing in this particular thing is important because it will help you understand how they're going to get to the bottom line. So those kinds of things are often realized much later. I think going forward, you know, if you start something together, I think it is important. That's what I learned is to just to make sure that everybody is given as much dignity, that not one, one group is better than the other. Um, and that we're equal players here as, as we, as we do things. And I think when you, when you build that kind of respect and you build that kind of transparency, you see a very different formula uh, on the ground, a different outcome on the ground. Now, you jumped into this after 9-11. You were inspired to take on this work. What leaders, or which leaders have inspired you, either historically in the past or the people you've worked with? Who have you found really inspirational, and how has that been reflected in your work? 
I, I would say a couple of things. Um, the first is I think that, that you become who you are as you grow from those around you. So there are there is definitely equality around what was happening in my own home and, and the inspiration that I received from my mom. Um, in terms of the kind of leader she was, she was a, she's retired now, but she is, a, she's a physician uh, and she ran a hospital in Massachusetts. And I, at a very early age, saw the kind of uh, leader that she was and how she treated people with the kind of dignity that she did and, and the honesty. That's a very important word in this particular world that we are living in right now, the absolute truthfulness and the compassion with which she treated her teams and the work that she was doing, that drove home to me how important it was. You could be a very powerful and very strong leader, but you did not have to forego very basic and very critical uh, aspects of your human nature. Because after all, in, in doing anything, you are dealing human to human. And I think that, that taught me, those were lessons that I learned very, very early. So inspirationally, um, my mom for sure. Um, right off the bat, I will tell you that, that, you know, that's how I grew up. That's what I saw. That's what I knew. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of person I wanted to be, not just as a, as a person, but also as a professional, as a leader. But secondly, uh, I, I think in, in all of the different chapters of my life growing up, two different aspects to the kind of people to whom I looked. The first was those people that had very clear purpose and passion that were doing things not because you know they wanted the the grandest title or the most money or whatever those other things might be but because they really had a passion for what they were doing and it showed and so i learned very early on that those people that i saw with that kind of character trait were thriving and they were doing well and they were well respected and they were succeeding. So that was very important to me. And then the other is, is sort of a more, you know, I think a little bit more of a philosophical uh, aspect. I mean, we all can look at history and to look at, of course, the, you know, the Nelson Mandela's of the world or other leaders who have sacrificed so much for humanity, who have done you know, done incredible work on this planet um, in the in the lifetime that they have for the bigger purpose, and and that you know there are so many leaders like that who across across my growing up and in my adult life, I've looked to to say you know if they are using their time on this planet for good, and for me that just it rings true for the kind of the way I was raised and what I believe is important to do while I'm on planet earth. And that is to do the best job you can for, um, for humanity. That's, that's very much a part of who I am and whether or not, you know, you succeed, you've got to try, you've got to try in every way that you can. So those leaders who are, who are doing that have really, have really moved me. So they come in different forms. They come in the form of Nelson Mandela. They come in the form of Muhammad Ali, you know, later in his life. They come in the form of people like Jane Goodall, you know, who is in a completely different sector, but was, was doing things in the way that she, you know, each of these each of these different individuals have common traits. And, and for me, that's very, very inspirational. It's, it's, um, and, it, and the other thing I, I would definitely say is that it isn't always 
the loudest leader that you, everybody's ever heard of that has, has, has moved me. There are many times that I've watched quiet leaders who, who have been on my teams or I've been lucky enough to be in the orbit of in a particular work environment. And I've watched what they've done without taking credit, without doing anything, but just by, the, by virtue of the way in which they carry themselves and live ethical and unbelievably purposeful um, existences in their, work, uh, in their work, that's been very inspirational as well. We can never have enough of the quiet leaders. We, it's amazing the difference people make at all levels of an organization or all levels of a movement when we just stop yes. and look at who's doing what. Now, yes. when you look back on sort of what you learned formally through your education, you've done a, a lot of work there, and also what, you've, what you have learned through experience, let me conclude by asking you this. I mean, you, combating violent extremism, stopping young people from, from being drawn into this movement, it's a massive task. So how do you stay upbeat, and what fuels your resilience? It's a great question. Uh, I am upbeat, and I am absolutely confident that the solutions are available and affordable. And the reason why I know that is because when you talk to civil society about this threat, you know that they are, they are on board with finding a way to stem the tide of, of this ideology seeping into their communities. You see parents and you see kids who want to push back against this. It's not just policymakers who don't want to see a bomb go off on Boylston Street, obviously, but you, you see regular people who, um, who know that fighting hate is a really important component to the, the world that we live in today, especially today. And so you see that vibrancy, you see that dedication, you see that commitment. What I, uh, and I say upbeat that way because there, uh, there's so many new ideas that are coming forward by young people who say, you know how I do this. And you know, fu fundamentally, Eric, the, only, the most credible voices that can, that can talk to their peers are peers to say, don't buy into that ideology. You know, that, that's, not gonna, that's not a good path to go forward on. And the more you talk to young people, I've often talked about for the last you know, decade, I've been speaking about this youth quake that I see happening around the world and, and young people wanting to be inventive and, and, and innovative and creative and, um, uh, and unique in the way in which they're blasting forward a whole huge scope of you know, you know, techniques to, to offer, you know, offer change within their communities. And whether it's social entrepreneurship uh, and ideas or, you know, a new element that they're using with, their, with their, their digital platforms to do social good, you see a larger interest. And it's not just in Western nations. It's all over the world, rich and poor. This generation of young people, both millennials and Generation Z, are really active in pushing forward. You can see that with the Parkland movement. You can see that with the other kinds of things that have happened in our country, even in the course of the last year, young people aren't sitting back waiting for their parents or their grandparents' generation to tell them it's okay to do something. They're standing up and doing, them, doing it as teenagers and as, as young people who are, who are active and, and interested in the world. So I get inspired by that, and I'm not being Pollyanna as I say that. I think that, that there is something very specific 
that is happening today in 2018 with the power of movements that is available uh, for, for those that are interested, whatever their issue might be. You're seeing corporations that are changing their bottom line in terms of how they think about their role and their place in, in communities around social good because their customers are now demanding it. You're seeing, you're seeing, you know, specific sectors of society that you would never imagine taking new stands on things beginning to come out of their shell. How is this happening? You're seeing more voices being heard. So I stay active and positive because I, I see that in this, in this domain of fighting extremism and, or another way of looking at that, that, that field, it's youth protection. We have to protect youth from extremists who are trying to prey upon them and recruit them into their armies. And if we, if we understand that that is what we are doing, I am hopeful because there are more of us than there are of them. Well, Farah Pandit, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate that you've taken the, the time to share your wisdom. Now, Farah's new book is How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. Certainly is chock full of advice we all can use. Now, the Kindle edition is available right now on Amazon, and the hardcover edition will come a bit later. Now, I'm Eric McNulty, your host. Remember, when the Europe moment comes, be ready to lead. Catch us next time on Leader ReadyCast. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.